Okay, we are continuing week two of our 13-week series on Long Story Short, where we're going to attempt to go through the whole Bible in 13 weeks. Uh, after I was done week one, I'm like, this is a bad idea. I'm not sure how we're going to do it. So uh, we're going to make it uh, in one way or another. There's, there's booklets for you, and so if you haven't gotten a booklet, uh, I encourage you to pick one up at the back. We printed some extras this week. We also have it available online. And so you can go to, uh, I forget where you can go to. It was in our SunWest e-news last week, uh, but it's available online in a PDF format. If you've got an iPad and a stylus and you want to be able to mark up your book in a digital way, uh, that, that's available to you as well. Um, but we want to encourage you, take the books, keep the books. Uh, there's reading plans in the books. So obviously, it's going to be very difficult for us to cover uh, the content of the scriptures in 13 weeks. But the booklet kind of gives you a reading plan in between the Sundays that help fill in the gaps of the story. And our, our hope is that as we go through this, you're going to get a big picture view of the storyline of Scripture uh, because it, it is in that story in which we find ourselves. And it's hard to kind of understand uh, this little portion of Scripture when you don't have an awareness of the whole story. Sometimes... You know, I think of it like uh, the connect the dots drawing. Have you guys have you guys ever done the connect the dots drawings where you just follow the numbers? When I was in uh, junior high, and they were trying to figure out what was wrong with me, uh, I went uh, to get some help, and uh, and so I'd meet with this counselor, and they would give me tracing books, and they would give me connect the dot books. Uh, and there was a season in my life where they didn't let me eat sugar or anything with red food coloring, uh, but they would give me these connect the dot books. And I would have to trace, you know, 100 dots in a row. And, uh, and they were hoping that I could focus long enough just to, to get through the 100 dots and that the idea that this picture would come forward at the end would entice me enough to, to stay focused long enough to do it. Uh, scripture, as we, as we read Scripture, it's kind of like a connect-the-dot picture. There's a really fancy word that scholars use for this called progressive revelation. And basically what that means is, is, is there's a limited understanding of what God is like as the Bible begins, but as the story unfolds, we have a progressively greater, more accurate, bigger, powerful picture of what God is like. Last week we looked at God as the creator. That's how he's introduced Elohim in, the, in Genesis, the creator God. But as we go through Scripture, by the end of Scripture, we have 400 names for God. And here we're only scratching the, the surface as we go through this week. And like I said last week, we're going to look at it more with a telescope uh, than a microscope. But we're hoping that as we connect the dots, our appreciation for who God is and how he's made us and what our role is in his grand story is going to become that much more clear. It's important for us to understand the whole story because context or text without context is pretext. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Uh, text without context is pretext. And so it's very easy to just open your Bible, point to it, and try and, God, what are you saying to me? You know, I think a lot of people employ this pick a pick and choose approach to the Bible. Open it up. It's like the guy who was looking for some inspiration and flipped open his Bible and appointed to a, a verse that said, Judas went and hung himself, and that was discouraging. So he, tried, he, he decided to try it again, and he opened it up, and he went to point to a verse, and it says, Go thou and do likewise. <laughs> it's like we, can't, we can go in a wrong direction very quickly if we don't understand the scope of Scripture, what God is doing through history, uh, and what that means for us today. So last week we talked about four things we need to keep in mind when approaching the Bible context. Their context... Right, so today we're going to look at stories that happened 4,000 years ago. You know, they live in a different world than we live in now. So it's it, understanding the biblical context, but then understanding also our context as modern people who look at history and look at things in, uh, in a bit more different way, in an, an empirical way, a scientific way. We referred to that last week. It's important to read the Bible in community because how we read the Bible as powerful, wealthy Western people is far different than how one would read the Bible maybe in those times when they're being oppressed, when they were slaves. And so we need to keep that in mind as we, as we read the Scriptures. The whole story, the beginning and the ending, we talked about the beginning and the ending last week, and then 
the, this Christo, Christotelic or Christocentric approach to Scripture. And I'm going to come back and remind us of it because we're, we're going we're to bring this through all 13 weeks. And in Luke, after the resurrection, right, so Jesus appeared to some people on the road to Emmaus, and he's talking to them. They don't recognize who he is. And then Jesus eventually takes them, this is what it says, took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, exclaiming from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so they do this seven-mile walk together, and Jesus is just telling them all the things about himself throughout all the scriptures. And then at the end of the conversation, it says, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I think this has been true in my story. As, as I've dug into scripture, uh, my heart begins to burn within me as, as you start to discover how God has revealed himself through his word, through the scriptures. And that Jesus is actually present all the way in the beginning. And so the written word reveals the living word, which is Jesus. And then just like these guys on the road to Emmaus, Jesus becomes our guide as we go back into scriptures and reread it again with new eyes. And I hope you'll see that this morning as we look at the story of Abraham. Just to recap one of the main ideas last week. So in the beginning, everything was working together in perfect harmony, peaceably. Uh, this, the Hebrew word for this is shalom. Right, so God, man, self-creation, everything in the proper order, playing its proper role. And then sin entered the world. And sin is shalom-breaking. Anything that we have done to participate in shalom-breaking is sin. So sometimes it's sin of commission, the things that we do that break shalom. And sometimes it's sins of omission, the things that we fail to do to keep shalom. But you and I are all guilty of actually participating in shalom breaking. And that begins the biblical story. God created everything in harmony. Sin created shalom breaking. And then if you follow it in the reading plan, you know those first ten chapters are just chocked full of stuff. Like there's that flood story of Noah. And we're talking about Genesis 12, so uh, fortunately I don't have to even talk about that one. So uh, hopefully you read about it. <laughs> no, the flood story, the, the, and the whole idea of the flood story, God floods the earth. And then he keeps a remnant, Noah and his family. And we read that and it's like, God did what to who? How many of you guys feel that when you read the flood story? So what we need to try and do as modern people is actually go back into the context in which it was written. This was not the only flood story actually at the time. And if you read other flood stories, the Sumerians had a flood story. And in the end of that flood story, Elil, the god that the Sumerians worshipped, was angry that there was humans that survived the flood. In the Hebrew flood story, there was a god that actually approached the human to build a boat and then gave a rainbow as a promise and a sign that he would never do that again. And it's often in contrast of what's happening in the surrounding context in these stories that we, we find the progressive, groundbreaking, wor world-shattering ideas that are happening in Scripture. We get to Genesis 12. And this is the story of Babel where uh, people were using the technology to actually build up a, a tower. People using technology to become like gods. Well, it's a good thing that's 4,000 years ago. That doesn't happen today, does it? People thinking that they can be godlike, control their own future, control their own destinies because they're coming up with solutions, ideas, technology. It's, the, it's, it's our story. But God looks at what they're doing in the, the Tower of Babel, and then he confuses their language, and he scatters them across the earth. So these stories are incredibly important because they actually create the environment that the rest of the biblical story uh, refers to. And so G chapter 12, where we pick it up today, links chapters 1 to 11. What is God going to do going forward? His, crea his creation is participating in shalom-breaking. He's kind of scattered them about. 
What is he going to do going forward? How is he going to bring it back together? Well, we see right away that God is a God of blessing. In Genesis, the word blessing happens 88 times. God blesses, God blesses, God blesses. But you'll notice that God always blesses for a purpose. God always blesses in order for that blessing to be passed on, a blessing to be a blessing. And so this is where we come to the idea this morning of promise. That God has a promise, that God has a hope, that God has a future. That, that this whole thing, this whole story is going somewhere. And if it's going to go somewhere because God wants to participate with his image bearers in creation, he's going to identify somebody to participate with. He's going to choose, he's going to elect, he's going to find somebody to invite into this. And so we're going to talk about Abraham, Act 1. Everybody say Act 1. In Genesis, I don't know why I wrote Genesis 15, that was my mistake, it's Genesis 12. Uh, So if you're taking notes, don't follow the screen. Genesis 12. God shows up on the scene. God speaks to this man named Abram at this time. He says, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. How many of the families? All the families of the earth. This is an incredibly important passage to understanding the scope of the biblical story. God initiates and calls out a human being for a purpose. This is a radical idea. The gods were out there. The, you know, at this time, 4,000 years ago, the gods were thought to be the stars in the sky. I mean, they didn't have the, you know, the understanding of astrology that we have, and they thought those specks in the sky were gods, that the sun was God, that you know, the gods were out there, distant from us. And here we have God from out there somewhere that actually encounters and calls a human being. And when we read the scriptures, we'll find lots of language about being chosen, about being elected. And unfortunately, in biblical history, we have read that idea as meaning at the exclusion of others. That's not the biblical idea of election or being chosen. Here we see the fundamental idea at the beginning of Israel history, the Hebrew people, when it, when it meant to be elected, when it meant to be chosen, when it meant to be called, when it meant to be blessed, it was for the blessing of which families? All families. That God elects, that God chooses, that God initiates. But it's never for just the benefit of the person that he's called. It's always for a greater global purpose. And so God calls, God elects, God takes Abraham and says, we're going to do something together. But this is a two-way street. And I need to know that you're with me. And so I want you to leave the family, everything you've ever known, the worldview that you understand, your father's house, which he worships his idols. And in that time, land was everything. I want you to leave it all behind, and then I'm going to take you somewhere. Where are you going to take me? To the land I'm going to show you. Are you in? This is why Hebrews 11 champions Abraham as a, you know, as father of the faith, because he, he went forward and obeyed God without necessarily seeing where he was going. The land I'll show you, and I'll make you famous, and you'll be a blessing to others. At this point in the story, Abraham's 75. Everybody say 75. And he had zero kids. I'm going to make you into a great nation. 75. You're going to have kids who are going to have kids, and, 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 and your name is going to be great. Your impact is going to be great. And Abraham believed him. 75 years old.
and you're calling, the purpose of this will be a benefit for the whole world. Act 2. Everybody say Act 2. You get to Genesis 15. So let's say you're trying to sell a 2007 Mazda 5. And you put it on Kijiji. And you advertise it. It's like this thing has sliding doors. It's like a car, but it's like a minivan all in, in one. It's like the best of both worlds. You can be like drive a cool car, but have the practicality of a minivan. You put it in the description of Kijiji. Yeah, I, drive a, I drive a Mazda 5, so I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to talk it up to myself. So you put it on Kijiji, and you talk about how great it is, and you get a guy named Bill who messages you and says, I want that Mazda 5. It's like, perfect. Say, so I'll meet you at such and such a location. And you get to the location, and, uh, and Bill asks you if he can take your car for a test drive, which makes sense. If he's going to buy the car and he needs a test drive, you, you test drive, you give him the keys to your car. And so you're sitting there at the 7-Eleven that you agreed to meet at, and Bill takes your car for a ride. And you wait 10 minutes, Bill's still not back. 30 minutes goes by, Bill's not back. You mean to think, this is a little weird. It's like, did I get Bill's phone number? Nope. You wait for an hour. And then you're convinced that Bill must have stolen your car. So what do you do? Who do you phone? You phone the police. Why? Because that's what you do when it looks like somebody's stolen your car. You call the police, right? Think of how, I mean, you guys are like, this is a dumb story. Think about how normal and natural that response and that answer is to you. You call the police, of course. You guys are, this is a dumb story. And within, ma- within minutes, a massive network of experts with amazing technology looking for your car. And then it turns out a few hours later, you know, up there in the, you know, in the uh, slums of uh, Millrise, they find your car, which is amazing. And they, they find this guy in Millrise, and they approach him and say, Bill, is that your car? No. And uh, why are you driving a car that's not yours? Well, I met with this guy, and he gave me the keys to his car. Huh. And then they asked that, did you pay for the car? So you explained it. The, the police explained to Bill. They say, they say, Bill, if you're going to drive somebody's car and you're going to take it from them, you actually have to pay the price that they asked you to pay in order to drive it. And Bill's like, whoa, that makes so much sense. I had no idea. I had no idea that you had to pay for something if I was going to drive it. I've never heard of that. What a great idea. And you find the story, you're like, this story is strange. You find the story strange and incomprehensible because you have a deeply ingrained sense of how business works. You agree to terms. You each provide what you've committed. You'll give me money. I will give you car. And if you fail to do your part, there are legal consequences for not doing your part. Right? Let's go back 4,000 years. What do you do when there's no police? When two parties agree to a deal, what do you do? We know what to do. We have contracts. We fill out forms. That's why we sign for things. It, it's true for buying houses, for buying cars, for buying Doritos. There, there's a rule. But what do you do 4,000 years ago? If somebody didn't uphold their end of the deal, what did you do? Which leads to this question. Because of these complicated systems of enforcement, of insurance, 
all the stuff. How did people ever trust each other enough to uphold their end of the deal? How did anything ever get done? It's questions we don't really think about. Here's the answer. A covenant, and we're going to talk about a covenant more deeply in a few weeks. But this is what would happen. You would get some animals, you know, maybe a cow, a goat, and you would cut the animal in half. And you would take half of the cow, you put it here, and you put the other half of the cow here. And the other animals that you cut in half. And you would create this aisle, separated in halves. And you'd stand side by side at one end of the aisle, made of animals in halves, and you'd each state what you were going to do to uphold your end of the, bio, the, the bargain. I will provide you with the fantastic Mazda 5 that the chicks will dig. I will provide that for you. It's got sliding doors. People will call it a minivan, but don't let them call it that. It's a car. Okay, you provide me with the Mazda 5. I will give you the $2,500 for the Mazda 5. Why did you do all this? Because of the next part. Then you would actually walk through the animals that you cut in half, and you would say something like this. If I do not uphold my end of this deal, may what happened to these animals happen to me. Covenant. If I don't uphold my end of the deal, may what happened to these animals happen to me. In earlier culture where systems of justice and enforcement were non-existent, your word was your bond. These rituals were like glue. And by the way, this is where the phrase to cut a deal comes from. And so with this as our context, with this as our background, this leads us to Genesis 15. Abraham's been promised he's going to be a great nation, but there's one problem. He's 75 and he has no kids. And so God, what can you give me if this is your promise and I have no kids? What guarantee do I have that you're going to make good on your promise? Then the Lord took Abraham outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur and the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? How can I be sure? And what did they do 4,000 years ago? What does God say? Go get some animals. The Lord told him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram presented all these to him and killed them. You know where this is going, right? What did they do? He cut each animal down the middle, and he laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. I just love that picture. 75-year-old dude. He's got his cane, chasing the vultures away. Abraham, Ab- Abraham knows what to do here. So I keep calling him Abraham because his name will change as the story goes on. Abraham. Abraham knows what to do here. He and God are cutting a deal. We're g- I'm going to make a covenant with the living God. And we're going to walk through these animals. then watch this. All the sun went down and darkness fell. Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. That's the end of the story. A smoking fire pot passes between the two halves of the animal, and this is a sign of God's presence. You notice something missing, though, right? Who doesn't walk through the animals? Abraham. Abraham watches God, the presence of God, move through these animals. Why? 
Weren't they both supposed to pass through? Yep. So what's the point? The point is that God commits to the entire covenant of upholding both ends of the deal together. If Abraham fails, God will still be faithful. If there's a breaking that happens, God will absorb the penalty. Eleven years pass. Abraham has no kids. Abraham and Sarah decide to take action into their own hands, and he sleeps with his slave, Hagar. So 11 years pass. So how old is Abraham? 86. Man, this is like the best Cialis commercial ever. Abraham, 86 years old. He's got it going on. How often do we not trust God and in our impatience take things into our own hands and say, God, I'm going to bring about the future myself? How often do we get into trouble in our lives because we are simply impatient to wait on God? And we actually see this over and over again in the biblical story where God's people, in their impatience, try and take things into their own hands and it never ends well. So this is what Abraham does. He sleeps with the slave. Hagar bears a boy named Ishmael. And there's a covenant, there, there's, a, there's a promise actually that's given. And it says, you will give birth to a son, you shall name him Ishmael, and he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. That's important. I'll tell you why in a second. And then we get to Genesis 17, 13 years later. So how old is Abraham? 99. 99. Almost 25 years after the original promise. God appears to Abraham, actually changed his name from Abram to Abraham at this point, and his wife's name, Sarai, to Sarah. And God commands that Abraham and his whole household get circumcised. And that's a whole other sermon. You want to do what to my what? At 99 years old? But at 99 years old, he goes for it. And he takes Ishmael with him, who's 13. And then Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And that brings us into chapter 21. And this is why it's important, because the three monotheistic faiths of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all trace their roots back to Abraham. If you are Muslim, you trace your roots back to Ishmael. In fact, sometimes they actually, the the, the stories are are swapped. There are stories about, in our Bibles, that have Isaac, that, uh, you know, theirs has Ishmael, right? And the... Uh, different ideas of sons of promise, but they trace their lineage back to Ishmael. And Judaism and Christianity obviously trace our roots back to Isaac. And so the, the prophecies that we see here, even in the Old Testament, between Ishmael and Isaac are fascinating. And you look at the news today and the conflict and the strife and what's happening, and, and you look at the biblical story. It's like, this was predicted and prophesied and talked about all the way back in Genesis chapters 12 through 21. Act 3. Everybody say Act 3. So at this time, 4,000 years ago, again, they didn't have the understanding of the world the way that we do now with the scientific revolution. But what they understood was that they were trying to grow a plant, and the plant was dependent on all these other variables in the environment around it. If there wasn't enough water, the plant wouldn't grow. If there's too much water, the plant would drown. If there wasn't enough sun, the plant wouldn't grow. If there's too much sun, the the sun would, would dry out the plant, and the plant would die. So there was this awareness that our reality was actually dependent on variables that were beyond us. It was true of plants. It was true of animals. It was true of human beings. You know, they didn't have understanding of the sexual reproductive system like we have, but they, they, they understood that reproduction happens when human beings do certain things. But why does it happen? They had no idea. And so they believed in, God, in a God of fertility. 
And so people began to name these forces. It hasn't rained and it's been pouring out buckets somewhere else, but it hasn't rained here. There's disease among the flock. This force that controls the flock or the health in this region must be angry. And so if you, you read back into history of different people groups and belief systems at the time, you have ancient Mesopotamians, you know, they had El, the father god, Sham, the sky god, Baal, the god of lightning, Yam, the god of the waters. The Sumerians had the gods of uh, fertility. They had An, the god of the heavens, Nana, the god of the moon, Utu, the god of the sun. The Babylonians have Marduk, the god of thunder. The ancient Greeks had a god, uh, Artemis, the goddess, get this, the goddess of hunting and the goddess of protector, or the protector of small animals. If that's not a conflict of interest, I don't know what is. Come, come. You'll be safe with me. <laughs> Meet my little friend. Um, so they, they, they had all these gods. They, they, you know, the ancient Sumerians apparently even had a god of beer. Ninkasi. Okay, so Acts, so we're in Acts Act 3, right? So you can go across the ages, the cultural societies, and there's a sense that the, there are forces out there that we are dependent on down here. You can see how people drew the conclusions that we need to keep these forces that are out there on our side. So we need rain. We need that ball of fire to, to be available but not to burn too hot. We need rain, but not too much rain. We need the God of survival to give us the ability to make more of us. And in order to make these forces happy, the next time we get a crop, instead of consuming the whole thing, let's, let's offer some of the crop up to the gods. And so they would often create altars at the top of mountains or hills, you know, to get closer to the gods. And they would burn it because what, what, is smoke, what happens to smoke when you burn it? The smoke goes up. And so they, they would create these offerings to the gods to show the gods how grateful we are to stay on their good side. So this idea emerged, the altar, making the gods happy, sacrificial systems. And so they created these systems. Oh, you're from over there. Well, that's the area of this god. And if you want to make that god happy, then you actually need to go to that mountain and offer this type of sacrifice and then they had priest systems. Like, they had different experts, different priests for different gods in different regions. Go see that priest. They'll help you. So the idea of an offering, a sacrifice, the altar emerged over thousands of years, but there's this fundamental flaw in the sacrificial system, and that's this. What do you do if you are successful and your crop is three-folds what it was last year? What do you give now to the gods? You give what you gave you last year? I guess that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Why? Because how do I know, how do the gods know that I'm thankful be, because they've blessed us? If I just gave what I gave last year, then won't they think I'm ungrateful? And won't they punish us? So we actually need to give them more. But let's say... There was, fa- there, was a, there was a rain shortage for three months. What do you conclude? That the gods are not happy and that you didn't give enough. And so you need to give more. And so you offer up your crops, but that wasn't enough. You offer up more crops, and that wasn't enough. You're, you're, in, fam- you're in year six, or sorry, you're in month six, and there's no rain. Now you have an animal left. You've given all your crops. You've got an animal left. And you're like, well, what? if I give my animal, then I'm, my, my family's going to starve. And so I have nothing left to give. So what else can I give? And so we had people that started to cut themselves to show the gods just how serious they are. God, I'm serious. I'm so serious that I will harm myself. This is how devoted I am to you. And they would bleed out onto the altar. But what happens if you know, it still hasn't rained in a year? 
Now the gods need to know I'm serious. What I gave wasn't enough. We need to offer more. And so this vicious cycle of things, if it, it actually messes with you because everything goes really, really well and you're successful. You have to give more and more and more. If everything doesn't go well, you actually have to give more and more and more. And you never, ever knew where you stood with the gods. It was impossible to know. So what do you do when you have nothing left and you, you, you still feel like the gods want more? Like I mentioned, some people would cut themselves. Uh, Kabbalah in 500 B.C., the mother god, goddess, the, she was known as the many-breasted one, was eternally procreating on your behalf, and if your co- crops are tripling every year, you would bless her in order to show your devotion. In order to show their devotion, there was men at this time that would castrate themselves and offer the family jewels on the altar to the god of Kabbalah. She needs to know how serious I am. Castrate myself. Makes sense, right? Archaeologists were excavating the Aztec temple and they dug up the remains of 42 children who the Aztecs offered to their gods. Because what do you do after you've cut yourself, after you've castrated yourself and it's still not enough? Well, you offer your kids. If you have to offer more and more and more and you have ran out of stuff to give, this, what, what else could you give? In the Inca culture, live children were given and they would suffocate them in a burial cloth and then offer them to the gods. In the Hebrew scriptures, we see stories of the god Moloch in the Bible who, who people offered their firstborn children to Moloch in the fire that was outside of Jerusalem. And we actually see a low point in Israel history where they start worshiping Moloch and they themselves give their own kids to Moloch. So here's the extraordinary thing about the story of Abraham is that this is the context. So this is like, this is pre-Christian, this is pre-Jewish, this is pre-everything we know. This is pagan, tribal world that Abraham's called out of. This is the context that he knows. And God calls him in Genesis 22 to sacrifice his son. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Then they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, and Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. And then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, Here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by his thorns in a thicket, so he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. I mean, we read the story, and we think, call child family services. Okay? Abraham, at the very least, is an incompetent father who's willing to sacrifice his own kid. What about God? Call families, child services on God. That he would ask Abraham to sacrifice his own son. Like, what kind of game is this? Well, remember, we are looking at that from our perspective, our context, and saying, that's crazy. Enter into the world, the tribal pagan world, where this was happening around you, And you notice that Abraham doesn't ask a question, hey, how do I build an altar? What is an altar? What is sacrifice? He doesn't even question God. God, you want me to sacrifice your son? Why? Because this was actually, this was probably Abraham expected it at some point. God is asking more of me. But if we read with the modern lens, we actually miss the revolutionary, earth-shattering event that's happening here. Not that Abraham was going to sacrifice his son, but that this God stopped him. This God him. This God said, enough is enough. You don't actually have to give more. There is nothing you can give me. And this time, you give to the gods. They don't give to you. You provide for them. It's a one-way street. 
But here, the revolutionary idea is that this God of the universe actually comes down, initiates, and then provides and stops the vortex and the endless cycle of the sacrificial system. Never being good enough. Never knowing where you stand with God. God says, stop it. This is where you stand with me. You don't have to question anymore. You don't have to wonder where you stand. God enters into human history and starts to tell a different story. Are you connecting the dots of the picture that is starting to be drawn? Act 1. God promises to bless Abraham, and through him he will bless the world. But in order to step into that promise, he must leave the land he's familiar with, the family he knows. He must take a step of faith. Why do both of the Gospels start with the genealogy? Why? Because the Gospel writers want to connect Jesus to the promise of Genesis 12 with Abraham. That what God promised to Abraham is actually coming to fruition through Jesus, that through Jesus, the whole world can know God and be blessed. The whole world can know where they are standing with God. They want to show you and I that the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham is actually found in Jesus. The whole world is invited to Jesus to leave their gods, to take a risk, to pick up their cross and follow him, to leave the family and the world they know and embrace a new reality. And through him, we will be salt and light to a world that desperately needs it because God always blesses to be a blessing. God always calls us, not for our sake, but for the sake of the world. A kingdom of shalom. Act 2. The God who carried the smoking fire pot and flaming torch through the carcasses is here today. This God doesn't require you to walk through it because he knows that's a covenant that you and I can't keep. He will keep it on our behalf. And when you fail to keep it, he will fulfill the end of his covenant. Behold Jesus who comes to you and I, and he says, this is the, my body. What? Broken for you. This is my blood spilt for you. Eat this, drink this in remembrance of me. This is the sign of the new covenant. I have fulfilled both ends of the covenant. My body has been broken. What happened to those animals has happened to me. Would you walk with me? Would you enter into a relationship with me? Would you stay in covenant with me? Eat this, drink this, live your life remembering what I've done and anticipating what I have yet to finish. Act three. Some of you are sacrificing to gods, trying to appease them. You're trying to control what's outside of your power by what you can give. And here's what the story of Abraham tells us that God will provide. To you who is sacrificing your relationships because you're serving the gods of your career, God will provide. You who's sacrificing your relationship with your spouse or your kids because you're climbing the corporate ladder, God will provide. To you who are sacrificing that which is most important to you because you're trying to accomplish through maybe your own kids, the deficit that you felt as a child yourself, God will provide. You don't have to live vicariously through your kids. To you who is looking to an addiction to deal with the anxiety and the stress of life, God will provide. To those of you who are self-harming because you don't know what else you can give, because you're trying to stay in control of something, you're trying to feel something, God will provide. In many ways, we feel like we're so far advanced from the sacrificial system of 4,000 years ago, but I would ask, have we really come that far? I think our altars just look a little bit differently. But we're still sacrificing what's most important to us. We're still believing lies about what we're doing not being enough, that more is required. Jesus comes to you and he comes to me and he says enough is enough. I've given all that needs to be given. You don't have to guess and live in anxiety about where you stand with Christ, with God because you are in Christ. And where is Christ? Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so where are you? Right beside the Father. So Jesus invites you to get off the treadmill of religion 
where you keep working and working and working and this thing is not going anywhere and he says, stop it. Enough is enough. Come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are tired, all you who are heavy laden. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. I invite you to stand if you're able with me. The God of Abraham, our God, is a God of promise, a God of hope, a God who initiates, a God who blesses, a God who does everything needed to keep the covenant. But there's one thing he can't do, and that thing is do for you what only you can do for yourself. And so when he invites you into covenant, when he invites you into relationship, how do you respond to a God like that? How do you respond to a guy like that? I'm going to invite you to close your eyes just as the band prepares to lead us in the final song. And I want to just ask you a couple of questions just in response. With your eyes closed, and I invite you to raise your hands. If it, if it applies to you, you want to respond to it. That God is actually calling you out of the land in which you're familiar to embrace something, a future, a hope. If you feel the call of God out of the comfortable, out of the familiar, and recognize that I need to change the way I'm living and acting, that's what the Bible calls repentance, a turning. It's a turning. It's going towards God. You just raise, raise a hand and say, I need to turn. I need to respond to that call this morning. to respond, you recognize this morning that God is a God that has done everything in His power to keep the covenant for you. That He walked, His body was broken for you. His blood was spilt for you. We're not doing communion this morning, but when we do the act of communion, it's a a re-receiving of that promise. How many of you received that this morning? You say, yes, God, I want a relationship with you. And then thirdly, how are there any folks this morning that have just felt like they can't satisfy God, that you've been working at this religious thing, you're on this treadmill that you've given, you've given, you've given, you're desperate, and you don't know what else you can give, and God is actually telling you, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. I'm enough. If you need to rest in just the reality that God's enough and to receive what he has for you this morning, just raise a hand. God is enough. God, we thank you that you provide. We thank you that you initiate. We thank you that you keep the covenant. And Lord, you respond for us to walk in relationship with you. Lord, I thank you that what you've given is enough, and we cannot add anything to what Jesus has already done for this for us. And so we just say no to that, Lord. We say no to, to trying to make things right with you, and we just say yes to living in relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's a, it's kind of like the hall of fame. We can call it the hall of faith, where the writer of Hebrews basically brings you down this hallway of all the greats of faith, of which obviously Abraham is included. And this is what it reads. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not go know where he was going. And by faith, he made his home in a, the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were their heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with the foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he is as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the countless, and countless as the sand on the seashore. And then the writer goes on, and as it gets to the end of the chapter... It says, these were all commended. These, these hall of faithers, hall of famers, 
were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they, would, would they be made perfect. Therefore, it's beginning of Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, since we're surrounded by these heroes of the faith, since you look around, you're like, you see Abraham, you see Moses, you see David. Therefore, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, everything that has actually contributed in our lives to shalom breaking. Let's get rid of it. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author, the perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross. What's the joy? The joy set before him is you and I. The joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since Abraham is our father, and Abraham had many sons, many sons had father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. Let us participate in the promise. With our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and throw off everything in our life that entangles us up. Because God wants to do something in us. And He wants to continue something that He was doing in them. And we make ourselves available to what God wants to do. And so I invite you, if you've never actually taken that step and said, you know, I want to be a part of that promise. I want to actually be a part of that blessing. I want to live my life in that direction with Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, my, my Lord and my Savior. There's an opportunity for you to do that at the end of every service. I would invite you just to come forward. We have prayer teams that are available at the end of service. I'll invite them forward now. And you can come to them and just say, I want to start that. I want that. And they would love to pray with you so you can begin that faith journey be a part of the story that God started over 4,000 years ago. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the author, the perfecter, that you are weaving this whole story together, a story in which we get to be a part of. And so we just say thank you. What else do we have to give but our very lives? And so we joyfully, we joyfully give up whatever has entangled us, whatever is hindering us. And we set our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before you, for our sakes, endured the cross so that we could be a part of the promise. Thank you, Jesus. All God's people said, amen. Thank you for coming. There, uh, as Colton mentioned, there's a Spanish service or a debrief group that happens after the service in the boardroom. It's starting week. Starting point, week number two. And if you're not a part of either of those groups, we'll see you next week as we go on to week three, the Exodus.